This is a Federal News Network podcast. The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement, which is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Off the Shelf gives a voice to commercial service and product companies selling in the federal market. Roger speaks to members and government officials about procurement policy, trends, innovations, and debate. Now your host, Roger Waldron. Today my guest on Off the Shelf is Jason Miller. Jason is the executive editor for Federal News Network and where Jason is joining me for our quarterly um, update, taking a look back at the third quarter in the year to date. Um, Jason, welcome to the show. Thank you, Roger. Always a pleasure to be here. Um, yes, it's always a pleasure to have you on the show. So, and <laughs> the discussions always get lively. Um, and, and of course, happy fiscal new year, Roger. Did I, did I, I almost forgot to uh, make sure you uh, are celebrating properly. Did you do anything for the fiscal new year? Did you, did you do anything fun? Um, did I do anything fun? Well, um, you know, uh, not <laughs> really, to be honest. I was trying to go through what did I do this past weekend? Uh, not a lot. So, um, which, I read, uh, I just want to let you know, Roger, I stayed up Saturday night and, uh, I read far part 12 once again, that was my, how I celebrated okay, the new year. So if you want that's, me to, that's like the night before Christmas or something, right? Or, I, you know, I don't know. <laughs> so I don't know. It's a tradition. <laughs> so I'm going to add that to my traditions for the <laughs> new <laughs> fiscal new year every year. Um, and, well, on that note, why don't we talk about uh, commercial item contracting um, and just where things are? I mean, there's been lots of um, you know stories and analysis recently about the shrinking industrial base um, that, you know, supports the federal government. And, you know, I would submit a lot of that. You can relate to the slow, painful death of commercial item contracting. What are your thoughts? DOD has been really at the forefront of this idea of the shrinking industrial base and the concerns over, you know, do we have enough people to fulfill our needs? And I think what's generally happening across the, the government is, is there's two pressures happening. There's this desire for more commercial type companies. There's a, they redid the, the definition of a commercial item and, and changed it in the FAR just last December. And then at the same time, there's the use of OTAs, other transactional agreements or other transactional authorities, commercial solution openings. That's really putting pressure on agencies to find new and different companies that can come into the market and really bring some innovation, at least that's the thinking. At the same time, if you look at recent reports from the DOD IG, from the Government Accountability Office, and when they look at OTAs specifically, they're not finding that agencies are doing a great job of bringing in these new and innovative companies. And it's this the, the same old, same old set of companies. And I think that's showing that either A, there aren't a lot out there, maybe, you know, that's, a, that's maybe more of a guess or a hypothesis. But B, I think, is what, what this is more we can uh, true is government contracting still is difficult. There's still lots of rules and regulations, and, and do, do people really want to take part in it? And all this effort to make it easy, more streamlined, it's not necessarily doing that. And I think that's a, a, been a big issue, what we've seen over the last, I'll say, six or nine months, uh, you know, since probably the last time we talked, Roger. Yeah, and I guess I would um... – Go back even further. I mean, when, you know, commercial item come, and it's focused on commercial item contracting a little bit, 
you know, when it was created in 1994 when the Federal Acquisition Streamlining Act, the implementation of it, you know, there were 28 total clauses that could apply to a commercial item contract. Only six of those were required, okay, in the FAR. Today, there are 94 potential clauses that may apply depending on the type of commercial item that you're buying. There are 34 that are required. So we've gone from six to 34, from 28 to 94. And then that we're not even getting into, you know, the various departments uh, you know, and agencies and their supplemental regulations that support the FAR. So, for example, the Section 809 panel identified 109 clauses that DOD could eliminate from potential applicability to commercial item contracting. And they recommended that DOD do so. So you've, what you've seen over the last 25, almost 30 years now, is the re-regulation of government, of government contracting in the name of commercial item contracting. And that has, and in my view, that has a cascading ex- effect. You know, commercial item contracting is supposed to be streamlined, bare bones, trying to do as much as closely to the commercial market as you can in terms of transactions. And this has been re-regulated. And it just, the, you know, you just think about it as a leading indicator of where the rest of the FAR has gone. Um, so th- that's a huge deal and something that, you know, that the, the government needs to get back to the original spirit and intent of the Federal Acquisition Streamlining Act. They want to do, you know, take steps to increase the industrial base. I think you see some of it, for instance, at the General Services Administration with their fast lane program. You're seeing it at some innovation places like the Procurement Innovation Lab at DHS or even uh, Defense Innovation Unit, DIU. But I think the, the bigger challenge is reducing regulations, making it easier for people to participate and wanting to participate is, is, not, is not as simple as it seems. And I think a lot of folks are running into this idea that yeah, we want these new innovative companies to come in, but there's not necessarily it's not it's not it's not cut and dry to get them through the door, and they may not always want to get through the door because of those regulations you mentioned and all the requirements. Like even like something as simple as and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, you know, the cost accounting system that they need, right? Um, how often yes. do they have that already in place? Okay, well now you need it in place. How long does it take to get in place? Well, it could take six months or a year. Well, why am I going to wait that long until I get my first contract? So I think there has to be something that has to be done to, to simplify some of those regulations to, to make it easier. And I don't think OTAs and CSOs is necessarily the only answer. Or I'll even go as far as to say, Roger, even a good answer sometimes. Right. Well, I think one of the things that doesn't get focused on, too, at least in our general in general discussions, but I know really smart people focus on it. Um, it's, and I'm including, I'm not including myself in that group, um, is intellectual property rights and allocation of rights, um, you know, under government contracts and just trying to, you know, strike the right balance between the government's interest in, you know, in, in certain intellectual property that's uh, either developed or antecedent to a government contract. And the private sector's, you know, interest in, you know, the ability to to monetize that intellectual property over time. And some of it has to do with yeah, just um, better communication between two, the two sides as to the expectations and what the government plans on doing with the information and how that, you know, data, um, intellectual property 
is going to be utilized over time. And I think potentially clearer communication between the two sides up front about the planning process um, would you, I get actually be a win-win for both sides over time. And I think that's a big issue as well that impacts innovative companies seeking to come into the market. On the opposite side of this is the good news about the SBIR program, the Small Business Innovation Research Program. That got at least extended for five more years. That's that's a an easier path for a lot of commercial or, or companies that have a commercial focus or or want to bring commercial innovations to the government. Uh, we know, Roger, that was a potentially going to sunset after 40 years back on September 30th. Uh, the Senate finally came through and, 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 and at least alleviated some or a few of or enough of Rand Paul's, the senator from Kentucky's concerns over what he called SBIR mills. So that's a positive sign. I think I think that's a big win for the small business community. It's a big win for commercial contracting in, in that broad sense. Uh, I know that um, uh, SBIR, there's a lot of concern. Our, our, coll- our, our former friend and, and your former colleague, Emily Murphy, the former GSA administrator, uh, had written about this and spoken out about this quite off, quite a bit over the last few months in ensuring Congress would act. Uh, and the, the House uh, acted, and, and, and here we go, five more years of reauthorization. So a little positive sign of it, right? Yeah, I mean, it, yeah, definitely is a positive sign of it. And I know, in, for example, GSA um, has really started to focus on the SBIR program and, you know, and their assisted acquisition service. And I know Jim Galoni is there. He's doing a lot of good work. So, I mean, there's that's definitely a positive, you know, recognition of the importance of, you know, supporting, you know, small businesses who are, innovative in nature and can potentially lead to new solutions for the federal government. I also think, you know, the challenge, one of the challenges just to mention OTAs for one moment is that valley of death between the prototyping and in full production and how the government handles that. What, you know, what type of competition or contracting needs to take place? Can it be restricted and, are you know contracting folks comfortable using that authority? I think uh, using the, the OTA authority. Um, I think those are all things that you know folks are rightly focusing on and trying to address you know, some of the industrial-based challenges. Raj, you bring up a really interesting point about the Valley of Death, and that's something that actually GSA and uh, I think DoD has been looking at really closely. I remember. Back in 2018, I wrote a story about this valley of death and this this desire by GSA to 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 really address it. My sense is they've done a better job by by offering some of these innovative products all through FedSim and on the on the schedules contracts and and really to help commercialize the technology. But I have not seen any data where okay, how much has it really improved? Has it really changed? Has the program uh, have they have they? I'll say. Reduced how many how many of the companies die in that valley of death? Have you heard any updated statistics about it, um, Jason? At this point, I have not. No. Yeah. And I just just you know, when you were mentioning that, I was just thinking too about GSA and you know back you know there's there's no new idea, but you know the, back in the day, we were in the '90s. The schedules used to have a special line item that was called at the time it was called new introductory items, you know, and companies could offer new products that maybe at that time under the um, applicable 
you know, pricing policies and commercial sales requirements wouldn't necessarily have been eligible to be on the contract, but new, but the new products were added as part of a, a process to, to actually to reflect the commercial market and get the latest innovation. You know, that perhaps something that GSA, you know, needs to think about again in the context of the schedules that maybe it's a new innovation item, you know, on the schedules. I don't know. That's, but, um, there's opportunities there as, as well. GSA writes the rules for the schedule and they can figure it out. And what I think also needs to get done is as, and I think this is what the reauthorization for SBIR did is, is holding some, both agencies and companies a little more accountable to getting through that valley of death, right? If you had, and in fact, the, one of the ways to alleviate, alleviate some of Rand Paul's concerns about the, program and, and the, the thing, the big issue that he brought up was, was about SBIR mills or these companies that win 25 and 50, 100 awards and never go to commercialization of their technology is to start holding both the, the company and the agency more accountable for, okay, after so many awards, show us how you're doing it. A lot more evidence is required. A lot more reporting requirements are required. And, and I think generally that's a good thing. I think these programs give out Big money, $50,000 for phase one, something like $125,000 for phase two, then up to $750,000 for phase three. And that, that can you know be, be tens of millions of dollars over, over the course of you know, five, seven years for, for smart companies, which is really important work they're doing. I mean, if you think about what came from SBIR, things like the GPS, like Pixar, the, the, the people who do like Toy Story and the Disney studio. And, and some, and, and even uh, some other really important technologies. So let's not underestimate the power of investment. But at the same time, I think some proof, some some examples of why this didn't get commercialized, or what you did to get it commercialized and it just didn't take, is not a bad thing either. Right. So I think uh, we're up on the break, Jason. And when we come back, we're going to continue a discussion, sort of on a on a commercial um, trend, and that is inflation, and talk about you know the. GSA schedules program in particular and how it's handling uh, equitable price adjustments. My guest today is Jason Miller. He is the executive editor for Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. You're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today is Jason Miller. He is the executive editor for Federal News Network and uh, Jason, um, you know, this segment, I think it'll start out talking about one of the it was a top of mind for government, for industries, for contractors, and that's the challenge of inflation and the challenge of inflation in the context of government contracts. Um, so what are you hearing and you know, what are your thoughts? I always have to start any discussion around inflation, Roger, with the acronym EPA, right? Economic Price Adjustment. Every time I hear EPA, I always want to think of Environmental Protection Agency. It's just the way it goes with, with acronyms in government. But now I learned a new one, and now I'm thinking economic price adjustment, which is the clause in, in many, in many agent, uh, uh, contracts that the vendors have that will allow them to raise their rates because of, of inflation. Now, what the issue that, that has been going on is GSA put out a memo back in March about economic price adjustments, and between March and probably September – it's been very slow rolling, and I think GSA recognized that, and they put out a second memo just in early September to further ease the burden on contractors who want to raise rates. And I thought this, this guidance was interesting because it did two things. First of all, they extended it through 
2023 into, I think, March of 2023, which is important. But secondly, they said to contracting officers, you need less approvals to make a logical price adjustment. They're not saying just do it willy-nilly, but you don't need to, to have these multiple levels of approval to raise rates that are obviously needed to be raised. And I, I think that's really helpful for agencies and for vendors to understand what this means, how it works, and, and why is it's important. Again, they say in the memo, this is Jeff Kosis, the senior procurement executive of Mark Lee, who runs the schedule program from a compliance perspective. He, they both they write, the temporary moratorium does not diminish a contracting officer's responsibility for reviewing EPA requests and asking for additional information. And I think I think that's key, that they're not abdicating responsibility. They're just saying you don't need three levels of or even two levels of, of approval. The contracting officer can do it. The other thing at the same time is the Defense Department. And I think this is also important because the DOD, and we can talk about this separately, Roger, if you want to start with GSA, but DOD actually looked at firm fixed price contracts and said, how can we make that address the inflation as it regards to firm fixed price contracts? So I I don't know, Roger, let's start with GSA. That's something the coalition spends a lot of time with. What's your take on on their memo? Did you think it it hits a better tone? Um, They were both good tones. I think it was just, um, you know, the, with the coming timing, you know, the, first acquisition letter was going to expire in September. Clearly, inflation hasn't abated at this point. So um, there was going to, the need for an extension was was paramount. And as part of the extension, you know, to GSA's credit, they took another look at where they were and provided um, an update, you know, that again, as you noted, eliminated, you know, levels of approval above the contracting officer, it also made reference to, you know, looking at indexes and or commercial price lists to the extent those have um, increased and they're tied to your contract. It uh, should be a simpler analysis to get to, uh, you know, making the, the appropriate and reasonable price adjustment that reminded folks of that. And just big picture, when you think about the two acquisition letters combined, you know, the first one, you know, eliminated, um, the, you know, the ceiling. So, price increases could go above that. Um, it also eliminated restriction on the number of requests you could um, submit as a contractor over the 12 months. And it also eliminated some timing, like like within 30 days of an award, you, you were prohibited or 30 days before an option exercise. And I think those all those things were a recognition that pricing was and continues to be challenging. And companies see pricing increase on a weekly basis in some cases and the number of mods that were in the queue and trying to keep up with those increases has been a significant challenge for GSA. So the acquisition letter provides a strong framework for that. And and one of the things it does do at the end of the day though too, which is all appropriate and, and we support is it does potentially increase work, right? If you can now submit more modification requests over time, and you're not restricted, that means there may potentially be more paperwork, which is, I think, why it's important that the tone about indexes and commercial price lists and relying on those, and then the frequently asked questions that were issued in association with the acquisition letter are really important for contracting folks as they try to navigate this and support as well. So, but it is a, I can tell you, it's a significant challenge for industry in terms of price increases and the tempo of those. And in many cases, companies, you know, have, you know, not filled orders under the schedules because they would lose money on the order. 
because their prices have not been adjusted. And then we're talking about potentially tens of thousands of those orders over the course of last fiscal year. So it's important and we're gratified CGSA moving forward and trying to address it. And I think that, you know, the policy is a great framework and next, it, you know, it's at the operational level where folks can have to figure out the most efficient and effective way to organize and execute on the processing of these mods. The DOD piece is also interesting because in, in, with GSA schedules, and again, uh, you're more expertise on this than I am, but you don't do a lot of firm fixed price contracts through the schedules, right? A lot of it's time materials and labor hours or? or... Well, I mean, you can look at it this way. So the products, obviously products are firm fixed price. And then, you know, typically the pricing on schedules for many things are for services are labor hour rate based. So those and those costs associated with that uh, rate also increase as, you know, you know, we're inflation. I mean, unemployment's at 3.6%, I believe. You know, everybody's fighting for talent and wages are going up and that goes into the services cost as well. So those companies are also, you know, seeing that and, you know, seeking appropriate, reasonable adjustments to address their costs. So those rates you can sort of think of as a firm fixed, you know, cost element that can could be adjusted under the EPA. Because I think what DOD did, which was very smart, was try to address that firm fixed price contract because DOD, I think, has a lot of those. And that risk goes on the vendors a lot more, obviously, than the yes. government. So how do you relook at firm fixed price contracts when you have an inflation rate of 8% plus? And I think that, that to DOD's credit, I think they heard a lot from industry about this. And they said, OK, well, what can we do about it? Are, are there things we can do to address this? And, uh, you know, the biggest question with DOD when it comes to firm fixed prices, do they have the money for it? Because they bought widget X at price A. And if widget X now costs A plus 10 percent or 12 percent, do does DOD have the delta? And, and, you know, sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. I think that's basically what the memo is saying is is you can raise the rate if you have the money. Figure that out before you decide to do that. Yeah, well, I think one of the things about the DOD memo, too, is that, you know, on firm fixed price contracts, it's it's it does a couple of things. One, it sort of puts back in the into CO's thinking, you know, and doing the appropriate analysis of when an EPA clause should be included in those contracts. For example, obviously, one of the factors is how long is a contract, right? If it's a multi-year contract, um, you know, obviously, you know, and in the current environment, especially, you know, you need to think about how do you adjust pricing over time, especially if it's a product contract, you know, in given the impact of inflation, shorter term contracts, is there really a need or is there a more um, prescribed uh, limitation on the use of EPAs? Uh, you know, it's, it's all, you know, a lot of it was their memo is focused on acquisition planning in particular moving forward. And I think it also helps because it sort of normalizes or, you know, legitimizes the discussion of, you know, the EPA clauses and, you know, the appropriate acquisition strategy for utilizing them in DOD contracts moving forward. And I think, you know, there's been a long period where we haven't had too much inflation, right? And that wasn't really something that folks needed to worry about, but now it is. And I think they reacted appropriately. I think the other piece of this that I think uh, we'll have to look at over the long term is what does it do for the congressional budgeting? We know there's a continuing resolution through mid-December, 
But then when Congress ups, you know, when Congress does get to a full year appropriations, whether it's another full year CR or or some combination of an omnibus, do they bring in the inflation issues as well? Do they up DODs and or civilian agencies budgets to deal with inflation, too? So I think that's something else to watch for as we as we look out into early 2023. Right. And then, you know, and then we have the prospect of a new Congress coming, you know, in January and, you know, they may have different approaches um, depending on the composition you know, of that Congress and, and handling the budget and, and philosophically about the budget. So we'll have to see how all that all plays out. You know, Jason, we're up on the break and we come back. Let's um, turn to e-commerce a little bit and e-commerce pilot and where that's headed at GSA. My guest today is Jason Miller. He's the executive editor for Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. And you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today is Jason Miller. He's the executive editor for Federal News Network, and we're doing our sort of quarterly wrap-up of you know current events and primarily focus on, on government-wide contracting. And Jason is speaking of such, um, of which, or whatever the right way to say that is, <laughs> um, GSA appears to me or is moving forward with its e-commerce uh, pilot sort of to the next uh, contract vehicle. Uh, I know you follow that pretty closely. What are your thoughts? I think it was good that GSA number one put out a draft RFP. Uh, came out at the end of the uh, early September. It was due at the end of September, so it just closed on September 30th. So I'm sure they'll spend the next three to six months looking at the responses and and developing their their final RFP. I, I think it makes sense. I think they got pressure. Uh, from Congress to relook at the other alternatives to the commercial platform that they're they're currently holding. Uh, that includes Amazon, Fisher Scientific, Overstock.com, and what are some other approaches that could bring in new and different companies? Interestingly enough, the the draft RFP that they put out is trying to okay, what are some of the other things that we can do? They're calling this about a, a five hundred million dollar market. Um, maybe even close to a $2 billion market if you bring in the, the smart pay purchase card efforts as well. Uh, there's already 25 agencies using the current commercial platform program with the three uh, vendors that I, I mentioned earlier. So how do you get more vendors? How do you get more agencies? How do you get more money through it to make it easier to get better buying? And what stood out to me about the draft RFP, Roger, is, is a couple of things. Number one, they're looking at a lot of really tough requirements for these vendors. And again, this goes back to your original comment about commercial item contracting. If you're putting so many regulations on top of it, at one at some point, it doesn't become commercial item contracting anymore. It just becomes government off the shelf, Country. if you will. And I think right. that, that's a concern. And then the other thing I'll offer is they have, and I've, this is my soapbox, Roger, so you know probably it's coming, but they have GSA Advantage. Again, why don't they just fix GSA Advantage? But that's, I know, a different discussion. But what, when you read through the RFP, did what stood out to you? Well, I think that the, it's a very positive development that they're essentially expanding, you know, the pilot to potentially expanding the pilot to include any type of e-commerce platform, I guess, that falls within statutory definition. So they're kind of walking away in a lot of ways from their labeling of the three different types and just saying any type. Um, is potential for consideration. I think that's a positive thing because I think, you know, competition is a good thing. And I think they also, some of these, you know, various models actually can leverage each other. 
right? And there's technologies, whether it's, you know, software that supports buyers working on platforms or whatever, there's all kinds of potential opportunities there in the commercial market. So that's a very positive thing. I think also the RFP, you know, talks more and more about business to business approach, which I think is welcome, you know, where, you know, the report that they issued early in the summer, you know, talked about the next iteration is sort of a bit, you know, still as a business to consumer sort of model that's quote managed. And I think they really need to think about a business to business model if they truly want to leverage the potential of e-commerce. And so that was good to see as well. And then I, I think there is a lot of opportunity here. And I think one of you make a good point to the extent they're, you know, have it, putting requirements where it's form over substance in terms of whether it's data and how the data is reported and or um, sub elements of it or, you know, additional you know, FAR clauses, the government really needs to think about what is really important to it when it comes to commercial item contracting, whether it be things like trade agreements or cyber, and then all the other extraneous stuff, just, you know, it's not necessary. You know, you consistently applied, you know, the FOSA, Federal Acquisition Streamlining and Part 12 FAR, you know, analytical framework. So there's a lot of good there. And, you know, obviously um, the next steps will be to digest those comments and then come out with a further draft or or a final RFP to move forward with the vehicle. And it'll be interesting to see the timing of that and how, you know, what the, you know, how long the contract would be and that, that sort of thing. But there's great potential there. And, you know, um, yeah, I think GSA's, you know, opening it up, opening up the aperture is a, is a great next step. What's interesting about the commercial item is it's one of, I don't know, half a dozen initiatives that GSA seems to be going down the path on. And it just, it makes 2023 even more exciting, Roger, as we get into not just the fiscal year, but the calendar year, as we get closer to that, uh, we're going to see a whole host of, of, of big contract awards, a big, big procurements that folks are following. Uh, I can tell you uh, off the bat, commercial platform, I'll be looking at that RFP, of course, but then I'll be looking at what they do with um, Oasis Plus. And, and you know, my New Year New Year's resolution is, of course, is to make it the Oasis Plus sign, not P-L-U-S. So that's one New Year's resolution you'll see me write a lot about, always using the plus sign for Oasis Plus. Uh, I have some very simple resolutions. You know that, Roger. I mean, uh, you know, yes, I, yes. I don't try to yeah. lose weight. I don't try to be a better person. I, I just have certain things. Uh, like Oasis Plus, uh, there's Ascend, the cloud BPA, of course, and then there's uh, uh, the the whole um, NITEC CIOSP4, which we just heard late Friday that they may have started telling those folks who did not make the cut and and and, and for the uh, final round or, or the the winners and losers of CIOSP4. So there's a lot going on. Um, what do you what, anything you're watching particularly? So and I'll just add two more of that as they on you know the planning and you know, advanced acquisition planning work for Alliant 3 will be, is this fiscal year. And then of course, NASA Soup 6 is coming down the pike and, you know, their first industry day actually is um, on November 15th at the Fairview Marriott and Falls Church. And that's actually the day before our fall training conference, the coalition's fall training conference, which is the 16th and 17th. And so, Joanne Whitech and her team are going to be in on the 15th. And then Joanne is actually going to join us as well for the conference of the next day. We focus on all these programs at the conference, 
on the 16th. Um, you know, so it's a great opportunity to hear where all these programs are going and what we can expect next. And I guess, you know, just looking at some of these vehicle, uh, potential vehicles, uh, you know, the Ascend BPA, that's, I know you have strong feelings about BPAs and, you know, I, I think I share some when it comes to government-wide BPAs, there are significant questions about the duplication. And the other thing that GSA has a challenge with is, you know, the regulations require for government-wide BPAs or BPAs with more than one agency that you actually specifically list the agency, those agencies that will use it and their corresponding requirements. And I think that's quite a challenge when you start talking about a government-wide BPA. And the reason that's included in there is to ensure there's real competition for real requirement, potential requirements or estimated requirements under uh, a BPA um, that's more for more than one agency. Um, it's fundamental. It's been in the FAR for a long time. And we'll be interested to see how GSA tries to address that as it moves forward. Um, Oasis Plus and, you know, that's, um, you know, obviously the next steps are, I think, a further draft RFPs, eventually moving towards the full competition. I, um, and they've got to get going on that very soon, given time left on the current iteration of it. Um, the question there, I think a lot of folks have, is that there's been positive developments. They've, they've named it Oasis Plus, which I think was important for marketing and brand recognition. And they've also decided to have separate contracts for small businesses and for other than small. Essentially, open to everybody, but then not set aside. That's important. I think that's fundamental. You know, the 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 GWACs that are grounded in high success are ones where you've you know tailored them and been able to create pathways for particular socioeconomic categories through like eight A stars or vets at first, and, you know, also uh, originally, you know, Alliance Small Business as well, and then Alliant that was that was paired with it. All those vehicles, you know, fill a vacuum uh, and, uh, and complement each other, I guess, in a certain sense. And they also provide a streamlined approach to acquisition planning for people who want to get, you know, socioeconomic credit, they can go directly to the appropriate vehicle. Boom, they're done. They can move forward. It's a streamlined planning approach as well. So it's good to see they move there. The issue, the question many folks have is how many contractors are going to have? Is this going to be just another schedule, right? And that, and what is the business case for a contract that looks just like the schedule other than one difference? And that would be cost reimbursement contracting. So it'll be interesting to the GSA addresses that and then alliant planning you know they just raised the ceiling i'm surprised you didn't mention that right to raise it 25 billion dollars um and at the same time they're moving forward with planning for the next iteration alliant three so uh i know folks will be following that um and it's a testament to the success of that vehicle that they had to raise the ceiling 25 billion to be able to support some critical government programs um across uh, various agencies, you know, many of them, you know, ongoing programs that were initiated in response to the pandemic. Um, so th- lots of lots and lots going on. Do you have one that's your favorite that you're going to be following there, Jason? Well, I'll just offer this. Uh, and, and then uh, you're right about the Alliance 3 and the Alliance 2 raise the ceilings. But I was I'm more surprised and pleasantly surprised that GSA is merging into Oasis Plus 
the HCATS program, and I think the uh, building and maintenance operations uh, GWAC or, or the multiple war contract, I should say, both of those did not do well. And I think having something like Oasis Plus to where you can order the training, the education, all of that from one place will actually help industry, but also help agencies. Right. So, and Jason, we're up on a break. So when we come back, uh, we'll continue our discussion and, you know, and talk about uh, VA supply chain modernization a little bit. And, you know, maybe a little bit about, um, you know, some gaps in the FAR that um, you can ask me about, perhaps, maybe. I don't know. So my guest today is Jason Miller. He's the executive editor for Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today is Jason Miller, executive editor of Federal News Network, and we're doing our quarterly update on current events and trends in government procurement. And, you know, one of the things we didn't mention in FY23 that will be happening or moving, continuing to move forward is some major VA procurements. One, you know, their prime vendor contract for mid-surge, um, you know, is going to be out there or um, is, is, is going to be a, a, a procurement that they execute on this year. And the other big one is, you know, overall supply chain modernization that the VA is, planning and has worked through a couple drafts and they've had multiple series of industry days with, you know, the IT company, a lot of IT companies and others just listening to their plans. And it's quite um, an ambitious set of uh, uh, requirements that they're looking at essentially trying to modernize the supply chain across the VA, not just for medical, medical surgical or pharma, but, you know, the national cemeteries, you know, you know, buildings maintenance, Anything and everything they buy and trying to update their system. Um, at the same time, they're still seeing the challenges with the electronic health records. And they're also managing, uh, updating their financial s- systems as well. So there's a lot going on there. And it's something that I think folks will definitely want to be watching moving forward over the course of the year to see. It's a big place. Do you have any thoughts on that at all, Jason, before we move to OFPP? Uh, you know how I feel about OFPP, but before I get on that soapbox, Roger, the one thing that we're seeing a lot across the uh, community when it comes to supply chain is the addition of adding how can agencies do a better job of using technology to manage their supply chains, and not just because there's been supply chain shortfalls or concerns about it or risks when it comes to cybersecurity, but really how can you use the the advanced predictive analytics, artificial intelligence, machine learning tools. And I think that's what we hear the most of. And I think VA is a good example. Has been under They've been trying to modernize with technology for several years. And Congress as well as, as their own internal uh, folks have some concerns over how that's going. So I agree. That's a, it's a big area to watch over the next you know six or nine months to see really where VA goes next and how they kind of make those decisions about what their modernization looks like. Uh, to, to The opposite of the spectrum is the Defense Logistics Agency. They just launched a brand new warehousing tool that seems to uh, be a hit. So, uh, you know, hopefully there's some borrowing and stealing and sharing among the VA, DLA, and others. Yeah, I think the VA is definitely will be looking at, obviously it's all about managing the data, right? The data flows and being able to do the analysis. And so you're going to be talking about some artificial intelligence and data mining capabilities as part of the overall system moving forward to give, you know, decision makers at the VA, you know, more, more and better information upon which to execute. So let's turn to um, OFPP. And I know there is an administrator right now, and I know that's one of your favorite topics. Or, it, you know. 
It is one of my favorite topics and frustrations because, you know, not only is there not an OPP administrator, Roger, OMB is missing several key management positions. There's no controller. There's no OPP administrator. Uh, there's no associate administrator for you know personnel and policy, Pam Coleman, who left there in the last uh, month or so. They only got have an OIRA nominee who went through a nomination hearing last week just recently. So they're really behind on really key positions that really are managing important parts of, of, of the government. And I can't stress enough how important OFPP is. And, and it's, again, Roger, you know how we feel about Leslie Field, Matthew Blum, Jody Newhart. They're really smart, do a great job. But I think what this administration is missing is having someone at the bully pulpit to really push forward on some key acquisition challenges. And if you look at what's going on over the last 15 years, unfortunately, Leslie Field has been acting more times than there had been permanent OFPP administrators. Uh, you know, the last one was uh, Dr. Michael Wooten during the Trump administration. Before him, the last one was Ann Rung. Back in 2018, we wrote the note, the story that had Leslie Field was been uh, 51 months of uh, as OFPP administrator since 2008. Uh, you know, someone would come, they would leave, she would be acting. Someone would come, someone they would leave, she would yes. be acting. Yep. So uh, I think that, and again, Roger, this also goes back to key initiatives that the administration is doing, like like Buy American, and th- that th- and that that in a, of itself is problematic. You you all you found a hole in it. Talk about that. Yes. Yeah, and just you know, part of the context too is our council, which includes NASA, GSA, and DoD, and you know, essentially sort of the for life for a layman's term, sort of the legislative body or governing body of you know implementing the FAR, and there is a hole in the FAR. It has to do with Buy American Act versus Trade Agreements Act and small business set-asides. And, you know, typically under a small business set-aside for a product, the product has to be made by a small business manufacturer, right? Manufactured by by domestic small business manufacturer. The non-manufacturer rule allows um, a small business dealer or reseller to compete for that contract and as long as it provides the product of a small business manufacturer, okay? And then there's the waiver of the non-manufacturer rule. Um, And when that's waived, that means the SBA has made a determination there aren't sufficient small business manufacturers of the product to be able to set it aside for that manufactured product uh, from a small business. And it's opened up to basically all other sources, right? So in that case, the Buy American Act applies. And what we're seeing is that provides the ability, frankly, with the Buy American Act applying, it's an evaluation difference and it it allows the possibility of buying Chinese products under uh, small business set-asides where, you know, a dealer is offering the product and and there's been a waiver of the non-manufacturer rule. So, Arguably, in those situations, especially when a, when a procurement's over the TAA threshold, since it's open to all products, the TAA should apply. And if the TAA applied, then Chinese products would not be eligible at all. And only domestic you know, products would be considered eligible at, or products from designated end countries, countries who have signed trade agreements, act free trade agreements with us or are part of the WTO GPA. So... In many cases, you know, applying the TAA actually is a more effective way of supporting the domestic industrial base. It excludes Chinese products that, you know, the pricing is just um, almost predatory in some cases, potentially. 
and it also potentially supports our trade partners um, who have agreed to abide by and treat our products in their countries on a level par uh, with their own products. Um, and, it, and the FAR is just silent on just as Buy America Act applies. And so you would think theoretically, since the situation described where you waive the non-manufacturer rule and it's open to all potential products or sources, that's when you start to kick in the TAA and restrict the ability to buy uh, products from countries who have not signed up to, you know, the trade agreements act. So it's a, it's a hole in the far right now that clearly needs to be addressed. And it also goes to security issues too, to the extent you're buying products that you wouldn't uh, otherwise be able to buy, you know, from near peer adversaries, you know, what are the security implications of this as well? So it's a interesting hole in the FAR and that's something actually that, the, you know, the FAR council theoretically could address or at least raise the issue to have it addressed if it's appropriate, if, uh, if other actions need to be taken by the U S trade rep or in Congress or whatever, but um, an interesting hole and something that should be addressed. And having a, OPP administrators who to talk about it, to alert people about it, to really even potentially press the FAR Council and or the Chief Acquisition Officers Council would be helpful because they bring the, if you will, the presidential uh, power because they were they're an appointee, they're in the White House and, and the Senate confirmed them. So it's a shame that they're missing this important piece at a time when this administration is trying to do so much around by American and small business contracting. Yeah, and this administration understands the importance of the procurement system because all the things they're trying to um, implement and priorities that are being done through the FAR. So, yeah, it is, there's a little bit of a disconnect there, um, as, as you know. So, anyway, I want to thank you, Jason. I want to thank my guest today, Jason Miller. He's the executive editor of Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. You've been listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. You've been listening to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Tune in Tuesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you 24-7 with supplies and solutions for every industry and access to product specialists ready to help. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.